Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Chapter 2. As we've said, today is Father's Day and we'll be honoring the concept of fatherhood. Um, We do this in respect for God's primary institution of society. That's the family. The family is God's invention. And when you invent something, you get to decide the rules for it. (laughs) The family is the invention of God defined by its inventor. And it is the basis for all that God created the world to be. I, I can't understate the importance of that primary institution of society, the family that God invented. The construct of the family, per God's design, begins with one man and one woman who form the leadership team for the family. And as as the family finds its primary purpose in raising godly children who are, in fact, the hope of a society that glorifies God, Those two positions at the top of the family become the two most important positions in society. The father and the mother. The two most important positions in society. No position on earth is of greater import to society than the position of father or mother. Not a pastor, not a teacher, not a president, or any other place of honor. For a little girl, motherhood is the highest achievement. For a little boy, he could aim for no higher a position than that of a father. So we will honor fathers today. And for the same reason, we honored mothers on Mother's Day. On Mother's Day, we did more than honor mothers. Um, We focused on the character and the value of a virtuous woman. Our Mother's Day sermon, if you remember, was from a passage that was comprised of a mother's wisdom as recorded by her son in Proverbs 31. Today, we will also do more than honor fathers. I always feel like making sure everyone knows that if you are not a father on Father's Day or a mother on Mother's Day, you can listen too. (laughs) This will be good for you. And so today we will do more than honor fathers. We will also focus on the character of a man who may someday become a father. And 
as as uh, on Mother's Day, that that sermon on Mother's Day was a mother's advice for her son. Today, we will preach from a passage that is billed as a father's advice for a son. However, this this passage is just a little bit different. Because the penman is the Apostle Paul. And he had no actual son of his own. Nevertheless, as you'll see from the very first verse in our text, Paul still identifies himself as a father and Timothy as his son. I want you to think about what that means. While actual fatherhood is limited to those who have children of their own, the idea of fatherhood is powerful enough to apply beyond the institution of the family. We understand fatherhood from the the construct of the family as God defined it. But the principles for fatherhood can be applied well beyond the institution of the family. And in the case of the Apostle Paul, he positioned himself as Timothy's father, not because Timothy had no father of his own, but because Paul felt about Timothy as a father would feel for a son. And combined with other passages in Scripture, it may also imply that Paul was the person who led Timothy to Christ. At the very least, Paul had a deep and abiding fatherly love for this young man. And Timothy had been like a son to him. Recently, we read this passage in our men's Bible study as we have gone through and studied some of the great heroes of the faith, men of integrity. Um, And Brother Mike has been leading us through that Bible study. We recently um, read through this passage and I spoke briefly then or I commented briefly then of what it means to me and as I sought out a Father's Day themed passage of scripture um, one of those rare times during the year when I'm looking for a topical sermon um, I, uh, I, I, I landed on this one perhaps because we had recently gone over it and I was drawn to this passage again so let's read our text 2 Timothy chapter 2 Verses 1 through 7. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that does so powerfully remind us of the kind of advice a father would want to give his son. And I pray, Lord, as we take this advice from our Heavenly Father this morning, that your Holy Spirit would go with it and would change us. God, if there's someone here today that hasn't yet partaken of the gospel, that hasn't yet placed all of their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would not let them go this morning, that you would pull them to you, help them to understand their need for a Savior, that they might step up and begin to follow the Heavenly Father's advice as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text begins with the words, Thou therefore. Now, I'm not one, as you know, to overlook nondescript words. I obsess on words. And especially God's words. They seem important to me. So the words, Thou therefore struck me as as special. The word therefore, as we always say, when you find the word therefore, you got to look back a little bit and find out what it's there for. Right? And so, the word therefore indicates something was mentioned in previous verses that brought us to this point. And in this case, Paul has, in the previous chapter, been extolling the faithful ministry of Onesiphorus. Yes, I practiced that one a couple times. As the chapter transitions we see that Paul is simply refocusing from this other um, man, a a fellow minister, and he's refocusing from Onesiphorus to Timothy. See, the difference in Paul's relationship with Onesiphorus and his relationship with Timothy is that he feels an affinity for Timothy as a father does for a son. And so he says, Timothy, this is for you. He says, thou, therefore. He's changing the focus. Saying, Timothy, this is for you. Then he goes on to provide advice the way a father would advise a son. I've always read these verses with a certain inexplicable emotion. It's the type of advice that I hope to leave for my son. The advice a father the, the, the advice of a father is the best a father has to give. And if you're a father, you understand exactly what I'm saying. We work and we support our families. That's a big deal to us. We toil long hours to make sure that they have what they need, but there's something else behind it all. All of our labors as a father have a deeper purpose. We work like we do and provide like we do with the singular driving motivation of earning enough respect to give our children advice to which they will listen. We feel it is the best thing we have to offer. And we're eager for the opportunity to share it with those we love so much. And our text is just that. 
It's a gift of advice from a father to a son. It's not, however, advice that's only profitable for the son of a father. So, ladies, you can keep listening, too. It's, it's, it is advice that the Heavenly Father wants you to hear today. The kind of advice that fathers give their sons is based on an idea that is greater than most ideas. It's based on the goodwill that a father has for his child. And that same goodwill, God has for you. When a father gives advice to his children, it's because he wants what's best for them. He really feels like what he's got to say is important. And it it comes from wanting the best for his child. And I want to tell you this morning, there's a father that stands in that position for you. The Heavenly Father wants nothing but the best for you. And this is the advice that he has for you. So listen to these words, these encouragements, and hear the voice of the Father today. The first item in the list of advice that Paul gives Timothy is right there in verse 1. Be strong in the grace of Christ. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, verse 1 says. You know, strength is a rare commodity in a society that seems to glorify weakness. We call weakness strength in our modern culture. You are strong if you step up and believe what everyone else believes. You are a hero if you Identify yourself to be what our culture admires. How strong is this? We glorify weakness. It seems our society is turning out children who have little strength. They don't know how to say no to temptations. They're told, if you have, they don't call them temptations. But in reference to temptations, that's who you are. Embrace it. They travel in packs. You notice kids do that? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with kids traveling in groups. But there is a dynamic here that you're not going to disagree with, I don't think. They all seem to lean on their cadre of friends for support. As if they can't stand on their own. And and, and it's rare to find one who's strong enough to stand alone and believe something different than the rest of them. And when you see one accidentally step up and say something that they didn't realize everyone disagreed with, they're quickly cowed. Beloved, our culture is in need of strength in our children. Our society needs strong men and strong women who are not afraid to be different than the crowd. Who are resolute in their positions, even if they are mocked by their peers for those positions. 
too often the phrase, well, times are changing, means people no longer hold to their convictions. That phrase now implies that the tide of opinion is turning against you, so you'd better follow. You'd better bow. We need steel in our spines and strength in our blood as we stand firm against the tide of a declining culture and say, truth has not changed and neither will I. We need Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood while the rest of the kingdom bowed to the image. We need strength because the opposition is great. And I'm not speaking of the kind of strength that comes from our human will. That strength is admirable, make no mistake about it, but it will fade in time. We, ha- we only have so much willpower. I'm not speaking of the kind of strength that is exhibited in physical achievements. That too is impressive, but it lessens against the constant onslaught. I'm talking about a strength that is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. David knew of this strength and he spoke of its origin. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. The strength that we need is not human strength. It comes from the Lord. And we can tap into it and we can depend upon it. We are constantly exhorted to be strong in Scripture. But always it is with the strength that comes from Him. As a matter of fact, human strength is to some extent belittled in Scripture. Oh, you trust in the, the legs of a man? In other words, you know, the strongest part of a man? Even if you have grasshopper legs. It's the strongest thing you got, guys. <laughs> God says, I'm not that impressed. Quite frankly, I looked in the mirror, I'm not that impressed either, but... He says, he says, you, 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 uh, you place your, your faith in chariots and horses. Now that is powerful. God says, yeah, I'm not that impressed. The strength that we need is not human strength. It comes from the Lord. In Paul's letter to the local church meeting in the city of Ephesus, he encouraged them to be strong. He said, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice this strength is in the Lord. How do we get strong the way we are commanded here? We gain his strength, look at our our text again, by filling up with his grace. Remember what grace is? It's the goodness of God poured out from heaven. And, And we get the strength of God's grace By availing ourselves of that grace. We have to purposefully come in contact with it. We have a a tree in our front yard. 
It's a maple tree. I got it for Tiff for something. Mother's Day? Birthday? Christmas? I got it for Tiff at some point a couple of years ago. (laughs) Anniversary, right, yeah. Hold on for a minute. I have to slip into the (laughs) doghouse. Where was I? Maple tree. And when we planted that tree in the middle of our front yard, there was this vision of flourishing red leaves. And um, it has survived, but only barely. Because I keep forgetting to water it. And and when as soon as the sun comes out, all the leaves just kind of shrivel up. The fact is, it needs to be purposefully subjected to nourishment. How do we get this strength from the Lord? We gain his strength by filling up with his grace. The goodness of God needs to flow into our lives. This doesn't happen by accident. We have to purposefully turn on the tap of his grace and sit in its flow. We must replenish ourselves with his, with his presence. We need to fill our minds with his word. Do you decry the weakness that you see in your life? I mean, do, do you at times feel unable to stand against the, the flow of temptations and a culture gone awry? If you want to be stronger, you have to purposefully subject yourself to that which makes you stronger. You've got to get in the flow of God's grace. You've got to spend time in His Word. You've got to spend time on your knees praying to the Lord, asking Him to give you direction in your life and strength to stand against temptations. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul sees the need for strength and he wants desperately to impart to Timothy that he must be strong, not with the strength of a man, but with the strength of the grace of Christ. In this next point, Paul prepares for worldwide impact. A man can have an impact on society during his lifetime. But if he makes disciples... He can impact the world after he is gone. Look at the next verse. It says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul hopes for Timothy to keep the faith and minister faithfully throughout his life. But there is more to this life than personal faithfulness. This is very important. This is where you take the next step and make a worldwide eternal impact. Understand that personal faithfulness is not to be understated. 
But worldwide impact comes from making disciples. Disciples are people who have the same convictions and faithfulness as the one who taught them. They're more than just admirers. We can all gain admirers. Especially if we don't ask anything of them. We can all gain followers. Jesus had many followers. He had relatively few disciples. Disciples have bought into the same ministry. They are sold out, fully engaged, partakers of the vision. And they don't happen on accident. Disciples must be purposefully made. They must be trained. They must be taught. They must be personally developed through relationships. Paul saw Timothy as a disciple of his and shows it in the next chapter in 2 Timothy 3.10. He says, But thou hast faithfully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. The passage goes on, but in this Paul is is simply reiterating, Timothy, you know me. You know how that happens? It happens by Paul opening up his life and letting Timothy in. And teaching Timothy. Allowing his privacy to be invaded. Giving up himself. So that he might make a disciple of someone else. And now Paul knew what it had taken to make a disciple out of Timothy. He knew the sacrifice that he had personally made so that Timothy might become who he was. And he wanted Timothy to pour that same effort and that same training into other men who would then do the same in their own life. You see, this purpose that we embrace is is not just to be changed ourselves. We mean to change the world. This is only accomplished through discipleship. Paul exhorted Titus in a similar way as he'd left him in Crete to make disciples and put them in positions of leadership there in Crete. And he speaks of teaching them and equipping them so that they might be effective in ministry. In Titus 1.9 he says, holding, forced, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Paul is telling Titus to make disciples the way I made a disciple of you, the way I poured my life into you and taught you and, and sacrificed so that you might understand the import of this gospel ministry. And I want you to take that same purpose and sacrifice and pour it into somebody else and make disciples so that they might teach others. And I could ask you if you are a disciple, if you are being faithful, and I would be pleased to hear your answer that you are sold out for Christ. But are you making disciples? Are you multiplying yourself? Are you training others? Men, you should be seeking relationships with other men for this purpose. 
both so that you might be discipled and so that you might make disciples. Ladies, Scripture is clear on this as well. You should be seeking to have an impact on the next generation of women who need to have the same strength and the same wisdom that you've gained in your walk with God. Lest we lose the next generation. I'm not speaking of colloquial wisdom or worldly philosophies. I'm talking about scriptural truth and godly discipline. Make disciples. It's the future of Christianity. This next one may seem similar to the first, but I believe it's different in several ways. Paul means to impart to Timothy the importance of being willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. He says, Endure hardness. Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Repeating the first two words of verse 1. He catches Timothy's attention one more time. It's almost like he's grabbed Timothy by the lapels and he said, and, and, and wants to impart to Timothy, Timothy, I'm not asking you to do something easy. I'm asking you to do something hard. And I'm asking you to stand in the way of pain and in the way of suffering. And I'm asking you to endure the hardness. It's one thing to be strong. It's quite another to be willing to suffer. Right? Strength is evidenced in the steadiness of a person amidst the flow of opposition. Endurance is the will to utilize that strength when it hurts. Beloved, serving God in this world comes at a price. Following God in your life comes at a price. It may mean that you do not get what you want. It may mean that you enter into suffering. It may mean that you endure affliction. Paul spoke of this just just two chapters later. He says in chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. One thing I love about the Apostle Paul is he did not sugarcoat the ministry. He just flat out came out and said, This costs a lot. (laughs) We have suffered for it. And it was worth every bit of it. But to every disciple he made, he said, embrace affliction. Don't run from it. Be willing to suffer. This world is filled with people who are guided by comfort. I think sometimes we get the idea that God's will is a path that is marked by ease. But that idea does not come from Scripture. You'll, you'll never find this assurance that God's path for you is going to be a soft one. We're only ever exhorted to endurance during the hardship that is part and parcel with the ministry to which we are called. 
In raising our children, we must train them not to shy away from suffering, not to buckle during hardness. Hardness is to be endured. God forbid I raise a child or make a disciple that is guided by ease and not God. The exits to ease are many on the highway of God's will, but they lead only to mediocrity and stagnation. Paul warns Timothy constantly of the hardness that is going to come his way. And he tells him that this hardness is to be endured. We don't quit when it gets hard. We endure it. Now we move to distractions in the way. Paul is well aware of the distractions that might lead Timothy away from the right path. And he challenges him to avoid the tangling up that comes with them. In the next verse, in verse 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. The apostle uses the illustration of a soldier. A soldier enters the military with the idea of serving the one who called him into that position. This loyalty to the commander, to the king, is characteristic of soldiers. In the time when Paul writes this, the idea of a career soldier was common. These were men who hoped someday for a retirement, if they lived, as payment for their services. But they were willing to pay the price necessary to be a good soldier in the meantime. That meant not participating in the things that others did. They had to live differently. They were not allowed to and did not engage in the normal activities of life. Even today we see that that's how soldiers live. That's how countries build armies. They isolate their soldiers into a place, and those, those soldiers live differently there. They come home on leave for occasion, but spend most of their time with their unit. It's because that is what is required to be a good soldier. They spend every day the way you and I spend every if excuse me, if they spend every day the way you and I spend every day, they would not accomplish much as soldiers. And their leadership would not be pleased with the effectiveness of them as a military. Beloved, we are soldiers in the army of the Lord. We've enlisted. We've responded to the call of the Holy Spirit. Our commander has expectations. And we must meet them so, so, so that we might accomplish his will. Let's not be so distracted by everyone else in, that, that enjoys something in life. We're soldiers. We're willing to go without stuff. We're not seeking to please ourselves. We are seeking to please our commander. 
In his letter to the Hebrews, Paul writes of this same concept using a different illustration. In 2 Timothy, he uses the illustration of a soldier, saying, a soldier, he doesn't entangle himself with the affairs of this life. He's he's, he's single-minded. He's focused on being a soldier. So he doesn't bother with doing what all the normal people in the world do. In Paul's letter to the Hebrews, to the Hebrew Christians, he uses a different illustration. He uses the illustration of a runner. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I love the way Paul is so clear to encourage us as Christians to lay aside the weights and the sins that do so easily beset us. Whereas our excuse may be, well, everyone else gets to do that. A good parent says, you ain't everyone else. (laughs) Right? And so our father says, hey, you're not everyone else. We're, we're supposed to be focused, not entangled with the things of this life. We should not be so concerned with what we can get away with doing as Christians. And be more focused with what is going to make me most effective in the army of God or in, in, in winning this race for him. It is untangling ourselves with the affairs of this life. It is laying aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The weights and entanglements must be left behind if we were to run this race with any effectiveness. This is a theme that Paul constantly drives home in his letters to avoid the entanglements that might inhibit our primary objective of pleasing Christ. Paul switches illustrations to that of a wrestler in his first letter to the church in the city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, And every man that striveth for mastery... It's a a hint at the Olympic Games is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. The temperance that characterizes the life of an athlete is phenomenal. They do not eat a bunch of refined sugar and junk foods. They've They've got a goal to accomplish. And all of that just tangles them up. They say no to themselves constantly. They stay away from activities that might injure them or make them unable to perform on the field. Most of them do. Why is this? It's because they want to win the crown. They seek the approval of the master of the games. Let's live our lives unentangled from the affairs of this life. We are soldiers here and seek only the pleasure of him who chose us to this end. And now as long as we're talking about the Olympic Games by way of illustration in Paul's writings, let's see another truth that is illustrated thereby in verse 5. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. We need to submit to the rules of Christ. Can I tell you something? It's not okay to cheat. Is that is that 
something that everyone knew already? Yeah. It's not okay to cheat. We all want to win to be successful, whether that be in ministry or in, in other things. And the temptation is to seek that end by any means possible. However, as illustrated by the, com- the competitor in the games, we must obey the rules that are set forth by the Master. Paul wanted Timothy to know that there would be some who, who appear to be winning. Perhaps by the size of their following or their popularity that they enjoy. What matters is not who runs across the finish line first, but who is crowned by the Lord. And that crown goes not only to the person who puts the most effort into the race, but to the one who was obedient in life. We must never compromise our convictions that come from his word for the sake of a claim or progress. Do not sacrifice your rewards in heaven for ease or for glory on earth. The prize goes to the one who strove lawfully. God is concerned with how you do his will as much as if you do it. To the church in Philippi, the apostle speaks of some who ministered under different principles. They saw ministry as a a competition and they, they rejoiced to see the apostle Paul taken out of commission and afflicted in prison. Philippians 1.15 says, Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. So the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Let's be sure that we seek the strength to which we are enjoined, and, and we seek to make disciples and perpetuate the gospel of Jesus Christ as we endure hardness and avoid entanglements We must always be submitting to the rules of Christ. God's will must be done God's way. So submit to the rules of Christ. Finally, we come to a passing acknowledgement from Paul to Timothy. And it finds its purpose not in the exhortation of Timothy to salvation, because Timothy was already saved, but in the reminder to Timothy that everything that he does in life stems from that well. Partake of the gospel of Christ. You can see it in um, verse 6. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Here we see Paul pointing out that even as the head man, the one in charge, the husbandman of the vineyard, He must first find the same nourishment that he seeks to share with others. It is one thing to see the cause of the gospel as a great one. It is is one thing to, to see that what God means for the church to accomplish in this world is something I want to be a part of. And embracing the cause. It is one thing to embrace the cause. And that's exciting. We get on bandwagons all the time. And let me tell you, this bandwagon ends up in heaven, okay? So it's a great it's a great thing. And I read the back of the book. Turns out God's team wins. So it's yeah. a good team to be on, right? Yeah. But it is one thing to embrace the cause of Christ. Quite another to embrace Christ as your Savior. Yes. 
And that has to come first. Because, as the Bible says, there will be many who stand before God someday. And they say, what? Did I not preach in the name of Christ? God says, I never knew you. You see, what applies to the rest of the world, the message that we preach, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by him, that applies to all of us. I don't care how much you do in his name. I don't care how long you've been riding the the bandwagon. I'm glad you're associated with the team. You don't get a uniform unless you accept Christ as your Savior. You understand? <laughs> there has to come a time in your, in your life when you recognize, I'm lost because I'm a sinner. Forget everyone else. There's two people at the table, me and God. And God says, the way into eternity with me and the way into a relationship with me is righteousness. How much you got? And you dig into the pockets of your life and you pull out the lint balls and the filthy rags and you say, okay, God, here's what I've got. I was better than most people. God says, that's not good enough. My standard is perfection. You got anything else? You better have something else. Let me ask you this. Sitting there on the other side of the table with God, do you feel a little bit helpless? Like... I just gave him everything I had. What are you talking about? That's not enough? No, it's not enough. And if that's alarming to you, you're getting it. Okay, here's the rest of the story. God knew you wouldn't have enough. You can never undo your sins. It'd be great if you could, but you can't. You could never undo your sins. So you're unqualified to put righteousness on the table. And not only that, you can never pay for your sins. The price for your sins is way too high. It requires the sacrifice of a perfect man. Well, blew that. That's why I need the sacrifice. So I'm in debt to God. A sacrifice I cannot pay. And the fee to eternity in heaven is perfect righteousness. And so Jesus Christ said, I've got the righteousness that the Father wants. Tell you what. I'll take your sin. You take my righteousness. I'll wear your sin on the cross. I'll pay the fee. I'll pay your sin debt. You can wear my righteousness in the presence of God. Let me tell you something. Knowing that, unbelie- that knowing that amazing fact and knowing that, that phenomenal truth is not quite enough to get you into heaven. You have to accept it by faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. You've got to accept his gift of salvation. You've got to accept his gift of righteousness that he offers you. Say, so how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. The Bible says, 
For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a real long list of directions, is it? There just needs to come a time in your life when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, recognizing that you, you can't do it on your own, that Jesus Christ is the only way that you're going to find a relationship with God. You embrace Him as your Savior, as your only way to find grace in God's eyes. And once you've done that, the Bible says you permanently wear the righteousness of Christ. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in just a moment. And I would encourage you, if you are not sure, you say, you know what? I've heard about this all my life. I know, I know all about Jesus dying on the cross, but I have not accepted that gift personally. Let me tell you something. The fact that it is offered is not enough. You have to make it your own. Okay? God doesn't force his salvation upon anyone. He doesn't work that way. He offers it to you. And he makes you able to accept it. The Bible teaches us he does that for everyone in the world. So maybe he's doing that for you today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Entitled, I Surrender All. That's that's what you put on the table. Complete surrender. So that you might embrace Christ as your Savior. Go ahead, stand. If you'd like to know more about accepting Christ as your personal Savior and, and, and joining God's family today, as we sing this first stanza, but let me challenge you. Come and sit in the front row so I can show you from my Bible how you can receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, just as we sing this first stanza. All to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all to him I freely give I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you.